you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since 1974, I'm Chris Ann Eastwood. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Steve Pride. Tonight, our friend Dixie Tretchell, who's host of Fresh Fruit on KFAI Minneapolis, reports a transgender oral history project at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Monique Morris of KPFA's Hard Knock Radio talks with attorney Olga Tomchin about transgender abuse and the immigration system. I chat with James, the amazing Randy, and his life partner and the co-director of An Honest Liar, a new documentary about the 86-year-old enemy of deception. And live in studio, we have Stephen Fail, star of Confessions of a Mormon Boy. And while we were on the lengthy hiatus we just had, two of our past guests on I, Mary, have passed away, and we would very much like to mention them in remembrance. Reverend Malcolm Boyd was an American Episcopal priest and author. He was active in the civil rights movement as one of the Freedom Riders in 1961 and as a minister. He was a radical fairy. He is survived by his husband, Mark Thompson, an author and therapist. He died on February 27th at the age of 91. And on March 5th, we lost Dirk Schaefer at the tender age of 52. Dirk was a model, actor, screenwriter, director, and a Facebook friend and a former Playgirl magazine centerfold. He chronicled his experiences as a closeted gay man in a 1995 mock documentary, Man of the Year. Another Schaefer film, Circuit, in 2001, explored the world of over-the-top gay circuit parties. More recently, he worked as a personal trainer and appeared in Playgirl a final time in 2012. They were both very amazing guests and sweet people that we missed. Yes. All right, now let's go on to the news from this way out. I'm Sarah Sweeney. And I'm John Dyer V. With NewsWrap, a summary of some of the news inter-affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending March 7, 2015. While an estimated 2,000 angry protesters gathered outside the parliament building in the Slovenian capital of Ljubljana, lawmakers in the South Central European Republic voted 51 to 28 this week with five abstentions to extend civil marriage and adoption rights to lesbian and gay couples equal to those of their heterosexual counterparts. The bill was introduced by United Left, Slovenia's leading opposition party, and was supported by a ruling party coalition partner. Conservative groups and center-right parties charged that the move would undermine traditional family values. A number of human rights groups and Western governments have sent messages of congratulation to the Slovenian parliament. 
But marriage equality opponents are vowing to have the bill overturned by a public vote before it officially becomes law. Such a referendum would require the signatures of 40,000 voters to qualify for the ballot. According to Reuters, however, the effort is likely to fail because Slovenia changed its referendum legislation in 2013 and no longer allows plebiscites on human rights issues. A poll last month found 59% of Slovenians in favor of marriage equality and just 37% against. But Russia's Vladimir Putin is at it again. The United Nations announced in July 2014 that it would extend equal employee benefits to its married or otherwise legally united gay and lesbian workers around the world, even if the country the couple is living in doesn't recognize their union. But Russian diplomat Sergei Kalitsov demanded during budget committee hearings on March 3rd that UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon revoke the decision, threatening to force a vote that could lead to a humiliating defeat for the UN leadership. Analysts say Russia could probably win with the support of several African, Middle Eastern, Caribbean, and Central Asian countries that oppose LGBT rights. Russian spokesman Alexei Zaitsev told ForeignPolicy.com that the edict violates the sovereign rights of member states to determine the legal framework of the life of their citizens, and that we will insist that the Secretary General urgently revoke the administrative bulletin. It's not clear why the Putin government waited until the 11th hour to demand revocation. But Jessica Stern of the International Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission said that Russia was looking for any excuse to undermine Ban Ki-moon's authority at a time when its own actions are being scrutinized. It's no secret that the Secretary General and Russia have been at cross-purposes over Ukraine and Syria, Stern noted, and the Russians have found the perfect political vehicle for attacking him. A U.S. Army Court of Criminal Appeals has ordered the military to stop referring to jailed WikiLeaks soldier Chelsea Manning with male pronouns. The former Bradley Manning, who's serving a 35-year sentence in the military prison at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, for releasing thousands of sensitive files and videos that exposed U.S. mistakes in Iraq, announced his transition in 2013. The court ordered that future formal papers filed before this court and all future orders and decisions issued by this court shall either be neutral, e.g. private first-class Manning or appellant, or employ a feminine pronoun. Nancy Hollander, Manning's lead attorney, said it was an important victory that Manning be respected as the woman she is in all legal filings. While Manning will reportedly soon be allowed the hormone treatment she's been seeking since being incarcerated, she is not allowed to grow her hair out as other female prisoners are allowed to do because authorities claim it would be a security risk. And while a 20-year-old policy banning LGBT adults from being foster parents remains on the books in Nebraska, the state's Department of Health and Human Services has announced that it has stopped enforcing it. The state, nevertheless, continues to defend the prohibition in a lawsuit filed against it by three same-gender couples. According to Omaha.com, the policy states that children should not be placed with persons who identify themselves as homosexuals. The policy also applied to lesbian and gay couples regardless of their relationship status. Married or single heterosexuals would qualify, however. But according to the Omaha World Herald, Nebraska child welfare agencies will no longer bar children from being placed with licensed foster parents simply because of the parent's sexual orientation. 
And finally, zeal and being the sharpest tool in the shed don't necessarily go hand in hand. That was demonstrated this week by a quintuply married 44-year-old Texas Tea Party state lawmaker. Matt Baum of the American Foundation for Equal Rights has the dumbfounding details. Two weeks ago, a judge in Texas ruled that a lesbian couple facing a serious illness could marry right away. And now state rep Tony Tinderholt, who is, by the way, on his fifth marriage, wants that judge disciplined. Here's his complaint, handwritten on a worksheet that the judge failed to notify the attorney general when in fact the judge did notify the attorney general. Not to mention the complaint is based on a law that only applies to final judgments and this was just an injunction. And finally, Tinderholt sent the complaint to the wrong judge. Matt Baum noted in his March 2nd report that Suzanne Bryant and Sarah Goodfriend, the 30 years together lesbian couple at the center of the storm, remain happily married. That's News Wrap for the week ending March 7th, 2015. Produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Sarah Sweeney. And I'm John Dyer V. You can hear all 30 minutes of the latest This Way Out, including more news wrap on Stitcher Radio On Demand, on iTunes, or at thiswayout.org. At the University of Minnesota's Anderson Library, the Treader Collection is launching a new transgender oral history project. Curator Lisa Vacoli tells correspondents Dixie Tretchell and John Townsend why recording personal stories is so important. We can't buy things that don't exist, so we'd like to buy newspapers or magazines or journals or information to fill in the gaps with the transgender, bisexual, people of color communities, but those weren't necessarily published. Mm -hmm. So I can't add them that way. And I started looking at ways that we could tell stories and bring stories to the archive, and oral history seemed to be the best way that we might be able to fill in those gaps and make sure that we had a diversity of voices from the community and the archive. We've been awarded a major three-year grant to do a transgender oral history project. The goal is to collect 400 hours of oral histories from two to 300 individuals all over the upper Midwest, representing a diversity of trans experiences. So that we have those voices in the archive, we have those first-person accounts and people really describing what it's like, what it means, what their history is, what's important to them, the organizing they've done, and really bring that information into the archive. Will any of that be put onto a special website so people can listen to it online, or will they have to come into the library to listen to it? You know, we're still working that out. Part of the grant is to do an online exhibit. So we will do some kind of an exhibit, at least with portions of the materials. But 400 hours is a lot of material to try and sift through. We're intending to record the interviews, if people are willing to do that, to do transcripts of the interviews. We may be able to post some of those online. We may be able to post all of them online. We haven't started collecting them yet. In the time that you've been at the Treader Collection, Lisa Vacoli, can you just share with us some of the things that you've observed about trans issues and, and the coverage of them? You were saying that they've they seemed like they were somewhat marginalized. Well, what I can speak to is what I've seen in the archive and our ability to document the trans experience. Mm-hmm. So the way we would document experiences is by the inclusion of published material. And we have 
quite a few published materials on the trans experience starting in maybe the 40s and 50s. Some of them are more exploitive documentation than first-person accounts. For a long time, there wasn't a specific transgender. It was kind of transvestite, cross-dressing, everything combined. So we've tried to add the published materials where we can. Those aren't always first-person accounts, but we've added those. Trans people have been more economically challenged historically than other parts of the community, and it's hard to collect a mass of history when you're moving around a lot. There have also been fewer organizations addressing trans issues, and so, again, I can't document what doesn't exist. So I've been doing some outreach to trans community organizations to try and talk about archiving. I've been doing some outreach to individuals, and certainly that's one of the things that we really hope happens as a result of this project. As we're going out and talking to people and gathering their stories and documenting them, that we also get to talk with them about their photo albums and their journals and their letters and the task force minutes and the work group minutes and bringing all of that material into the archive so that when people study this now in 50 years, on 100 years from now, we want the first person voices to be there because otherwise people are going to have to rely on the textbooks or the newspaper accounts mm-hmm. yep. or the mainstream media and they're not going to hear the real story. Just so people know, the Trader Collection has an international collection. We have materials in 58 different languages. We have materials from all over Asia, all over Europe, all over Central and South America. So it's really a remarkable collection. This project specifically is focused on the upper Midwest. The University of Minnesota was the second institution in the country in 1967 to do transgender sex change operations. We were a few months behind Johns Hopkins University. There had been black market operations before, but this was at a known publicly announced institution. So we are committed both in what we bring into the collection and in doing the oral histories in getting as much diversity as we can in the voices of the trans community. So we're looking for people who transitioned fully. We're looking for people who didn't. We're looking for people who were dealing with this in the 60s and 70s. We're looking for people who are just starting to deal with it now. So we're really looking for a wide range of experiences. Well, that was the University of Minnesota Treasure Collections, Lisa Vicali, speaking with Dixie Truchel and John Townsend, host of Fresh Fruit on KFAI Minneapolis. I think that's a great thing. I think every major university in the four corners of our nation should be doing the exact same thing. Transgender issues, of course, in immigration detention, particularly undocumented trans women of color, they suffer sexual humiliation, abuse, and denial of necessary medical care. Dr. Monique Morris of KPFA's Hard Knock Radio talks about transgender mistreatment and the immigration system with attorney Olga Tomchin of the Transgender Law Center. Hello, this is Monique Morris. In general, our justice system discussions tend to speak of gender as if it were a binary. And this is something that is certainly reflected in our national discussions about immigration. But the truth is that not only is there a gender continuum, but that many transgender people suffer from physical violence and abuse in our nation's correctional and detention facilities, all because of their gender identity. With me today is Olga Tomchin, attorney and Soros Justice Fellow at the Transgender Law Center based in the Bay Area. Welcome, Olga. Thank you so much for having me. So what is the mission of the Transgender Law Center? The mission with respect to immigration detention for Transgender Law Center and really the LGBT movement as a whole now is that we are really pushing for no more detention of LGBT people, period. We're obviously fighting to end immigration detention in general 
all people suffer in immigration detention. Immigration detention is wrong for everyone. But the harms that trans women specifically and anyone else who's really seen to be violating gender norms experience within immigration detention are so extreme and so particularized. And we've been doing years of advocacy with ICE to try to get them to change. So you're working on a specific case in Arizona. Can you tell us about that? Yes. um, We are working on a case of a young Guatemalan trans woman named Nicole Hernandez Polanco. Nicole is spelled N-I-C-O-L-L. We have a hashtag. Hashtag free Nicole. You can look that up and see a lot of information for anyone in the audience. Free Nicole with two L's. Nicole uh, is a young Guatemalan trans woman who came out as trans when she was about 14 years old. She pretty much immediately experienced really terrible abuse from her family, including sexual abuse from her stepfather, a lot of targeting by gangs in Guatemala. And so she tried to flee the country and tried to flee into the U.S. when she was still an unaccompanied minor. So when she was a child desperately trying to escape by herself. Mm -hmm. Many people don't know that asylum exists. You know, many all over the world frequently don't know that asylum exists. And trans people often have no idea that trans people are protected by asylum. Because if you face extreme violence from your government your entire life, you wouldn't necessarily know that a government would protect you based on your gender identity. Nicole did not know that asylum existed. She didn't know that she was protected. And when she was caught by Border Patrol trying to enter the country to flee for her life, they basically subjected to the same horrible conditions and she just gave up and self-deported. So that was when she was 17. From then, about seven years ago till October, she was bouncing around different migrant shelters in Mexico, just trying to survive, experiencing still terrible things in Mexico. And then she learned about asylum and learned that she could be safe and finally be able to be her authentic self freely in the U.S. Obviously, we know that trans women of color experience violence here, too. But I think it's a testament to how horrible the violence was that she thought she would still be safer here. Mm -hmm. So she turned herself in at the border and asked for asylum. And ICE reacted by throwing her into this terrible detention facility called Florence in Florence, Arizona, where she was housed with men. Within this facility, she experienced constant, constant harassment from guards and just terrible sexual harassment and abuse. She would be patted down about six to eight times a day by male guards who would grope her breasts and her bottom and say really terrible things like thank her for how much they enjoyed patting her down. They would call her all sorts of terrible homophobic and misogynistic slurs. They would actually lead her around the detention facility, pulling her hair, just all sorts of awful things. They would deny her medical care. She would be forced to shower with men. Mm-hmm. And she's been on hormones for about 10 years. So mm-hmm. her body has mm-hmm. you know, a lot mm-hmm. of changes. She has breasts mm-hmm. and she would still be forced to shower with men, mm-hmm. even though she would beg them not to have to do that. She would mm-hmm. beg them to let her be housed with women and mm-hmm. they would just laugh at her and just mock her all mm-hmm. of the time. And so it was just constant extreme emotional abuse. And think about, you know, all of the things that she'd suffered already, all of the things that she thought she was escaping. Mm -hmm. So she has all of this untreated post-traumatic stress disorder. And unsurprisingly, unfortunately, she's been sexually assaulted a number of times by other detained immigrants. It's just really horrific in every way. And one time when she tried to defend herself to one of the guards, so just just saying like, hey, you need to treat me more respectfully. I'm a human being, too. Mm -hmm. The guard threw her in solitary confinement for being insolent. That's how they go after you. Mm -hmm. So they threw her into solitary confinement, which is torture. There might even be ways in which this culture of human rights violations facilitates 
maybe the guards encouraging in some ways this mistreatment of trans women. Can you talk about that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when the guards are calling her slurs in front of other immigrants every single day, when the guards are groping her in front of people and laughing about it, when the guards force her to shower with men, all of that signals that people can hurt her and that there's going to be no punishment, no accountability. So, for instance, when Nicole was sexually assaulted by another detained immigrant, two days later, they put him in the same housing cell as her. After she reported it, she reported it. And we contacted ICE headquarters about it. And they still knew this and they still did that. So it really signals to everyone in the facility that she's fair game. They're facilitating a climate Mm -hmm. of abuse. But this is even worse than that. This is a blatant disregard for her humanity and placing her intentionally in harm's way. Yes, absolutely. Because then if she self-deports, hey, that boosts their deportation numbers. They get to hit their deportation targets even more. So something has to be done about that perverse incentive. Exactly. So luckily, there are really amazing advocates, grassroots organizers who are working on the ground in Arizona. There's a group called Mariposas Sin Fronteras, Butterflies Without Borders, Mm -hmm. that goes and provides emotional and psychological support to detained queer and trans immigrants in Arizona. And they found out about her and they then contacted me because we have a very close working relationship. So I helped find Nicole, a lawyer who's been fighting valiantly for her actual immigration case. And we've just been doing constant advocacy with ICE. So Nicole has been detained since October now, so a very long time. And once we made ICE aware of this, we told them they needed to release Nicole immediately and fix the situation or else we would go to the public. Mm -hmm. We would not keep quiet about what was happening. And things marginally approved in certain ways. So now she's being patted down by female guards instead of male guards, but she's still experiencing most of the same abuse. So a few months ago when Nicole was starting to get really desperate, really overwhelmed when ICE was trying to pressure her every day to self-deport, even though she has an attorney, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. obviously hugely unethical Mm -hmm. for them to be even talking to her and giving her legal advice without her attorney present. That's when we felt like we needed to go public. And that's when Mm -hmm. we began the public campaign. Another thing that I forgot to mention is the people on the ground at the detention center are just completely shameless in terms of their abuse of Nicole. So, for instance, in front of Nicole's attorney, the guards refer to Nicole as it. That just shows how they view her. They don't even understand that she's a human being. Hopefully when she gets out, she can be on your show and yeah. she, she can talk to you about her yes. experience because she's just such like an incredible sparkling star of a person. You know, some people just mm-hmm. like have so much spirit. You just love being around them because their energy is so mm-hmm. incredible. Mm-hmm. She's one of those people that you just like want to soak up her energy. Very sweet and kind. So one of the things that she asked me when I went to visit her was like, Olga, why are they so mean to me? She doesn't understand how people can hate her so much for just her gender identity, that that's enough for them to treat her like she is not a human being. And I think that this kind of emotional harm is something that's really important to talk about and something to talk about in incarceration in general is that all of the really serious human rights abuses like solitary confinement and sexual assault and deprivation of medical care are all very important and necessary to talk about. But for a lot of people, what I've seen, the most damaging part of the whole experience, the thing that's hardest for them is just being made to feel like you are not a human. 
that you are not as human as the guards, that you are not as human as the people running the system, that you do not feel pain and love in the same way that they do. And that's just really, really emotionally difficult. That's the thing about criminalization. Mm -hmm. Criminalization is dehumanizing. Exactly. And it's traumatic. Mm -hmm. And our society operates as if it's normal. Yeah. I talk a lot about Audre Lorde. And we know her writings about this mythical norm. Right. Mm -hmm. So she talks about this mythical norm in the sense that we tend to think that there is a perfect being that is not us, right? And Mm -hmm. we are othered in this way Mm -hmm. that prevents us from embracing our full humanity. And in this case, not just our full humanity, although that's at the core Mm -hmm. of this work, but also our core dignity. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Exactly. And so when you're thinking about this campaign and you're Mm -hmm. thinking about the work that needs to be done both to free Nicole, but also to elevate mm-hmm. you know, some of these issues in a broader domain, mm-hmm. right? Because the thing about Nicole is she's not alone. No. Right? Her case and is typical. What are we talking about in terms of statistics with mm-hmm. respect to trans women who are experiencing these issues? The estimate that was recently done by the Williams Institute, which is based out of UCLA Law School, is that every day there are about 75 detained trans people. And almost all of them are experiencing various levels of this. All of them are experiencing extreme dignitary harms on a daily basis. All of them are experiencing extreme emotional abuse on a daily basis. And oftentimes they're experiencing a huge risk of sexual violence or being thrown into solitary. So this is just constant every single day, at least 75. And most trans women who are detained don't have the benefit of me, of having someone who's at a national organization who is calling ICE, calling the White House, calling DHS every single day. They don't have the benefit of that because often trans women, especially undocumented trans women of color, experience really extreme socioeconomic marginalization. Mm -hmm. And unlike a lot of other immigrants, when they get stuck in detention, they don't have a family who is willing to sell the car, for instance, to pay for a lawyer or to pay for the bond. So people are much more likely to be totally unsupported both through their community and also through attorneys while they're in detention. That's why we're really fighting not just for the individual cases, but to stop detention of trans people, period, because things are going to continue. If even someone with a lawyer, you know, ICE headquarters knows me really well by now. So even, sure. yeah, they're, they're not fans. So even <laughs> even with someone having me and they know I call media, they know that I will call MSNBC tomorrow if something bad happens to Nicole. So even if with me, she's still being called it by the guards. You can imagine people who don't have that kind of support, who don't right, have eyes watching what they're experiencing. So in our final moments, mm-hmm. let's talk about solutions. What is being done to address these issues? How can people get involved? How can we begin to shift this narrative? Right now, we have a petition going on the Not One More Deportation website. So if you just go on notonemoredeportation.com, you will find Nicole's petition. It also has a phone number to call ICE. So call ICE and tell them to let her go. Tell them that this is not acceptable and that the queer and trans community and the human community in general will not allow this kind of torture to be happening in our name and that we are not going to shut up until Nicole and all other detained trans women are free and back in their communities where they belong so that they can heal in safety and fight their asylum cases in safety. That is what I really recommend that people do. And also just post her story on social media, talk about it. Thank you so much, Olga, for joining us today. This is Monique Morris, and thank you for listening. Thank you so much. 
Our thanks to Dr. Monique Morris of KPFA and, of course, our guest, Olga Tomchin. And that was grimly fascinating. I've never considered the plight of a transgender person trying to come into this country. Yeah, and she pointed out that the asylum laws should have protected this woman. Right, but the systemic uh, abuse of transgender women of color, I mean, the crime statistics alone outside of this system, I mean, just just this year alone, it's horrific. Well, on a lighter note, still to come, my chat with James the Amazing Randy. And lapsed Mormon and former escort Stephen Fale stops by to talk about his award-winning and L.A. Times-recommended one-man show, Confessions of a Mormon Boy. So don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. Billie Holiday, one of a kind, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Known for her emotionally-laden style of singing and distinctive phrasing, Billie Holiday became one of the greatest jazz vocalists ever, but she did have a hard life. Holiday's personal life was as turbulent as some of the songs she sang. She gravitated toward irresponsible, abusive men, with those experiences sometimes heard in themes of heartbreak in her songs. Holiday married trombonist and small-time drug dealer Jimmy Moore in 1941. While still married, she took up with Joe Guy as his common-law wife. She split up with both soon after. Holiday had relationships with both men and women, including the first lady of the American stage, Tallulah Bankhead. Holiday later claimed that Tallulah's bold show of affection backstage almost cost her her job at the Strand Theater. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Janet Lundy. Hello, I'm James Randi, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine on KPFK-FM, 90.7 Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 99.5 Ridgecrest, China Lake, 93.7 San Diego, or streaming online at kpfk.org. And take it from me, it's amazing. Welcome back. Listen to IMRU Radio. I'm Steve Prime. I'm Chris Ann Eastwood. And I'm Wenzel Jones. The time is now 7.30. Well, we just finished Fun Drive, and if you were listening, this station, we love a good conspiracy theory. We love our homeopathy. We love all of our spiritualism. So bringing the world's foremost skeptic to KPFK takes real guts. But I loved watching him on the Johnny Carson show when I was just a child and was not about to pass up the opportunity to meet him. Launching his career in 1945, James the Amazing Randy entertained millions of people around the world with his remarkable feats of magic, escape, and deception. But when others started to label their tricks as real magic, Randy began to challenge their claims, becoming in the process the world's best-known skeptic. His story is chronicled in the new documentary, an honest liar. My name is Justin Weinstein. I am one of the directors of An Honest Liar, along with Tyler Meesom. I am James Randigan. I am an honest liar. My name is David Pena, professionally known as the artist Jose Alvarez. James, have you always been amazing? Oh, no. I used to be astonishing, but it doesn't fit on a marquee very well. You dropped out of high school in 1945 to become a magician. Why? I was one of those child prodigies. I was able to stay out of grade school. I just had to go in to write the examinations. This is in Canada. And many, many years ago, I'm 86, figure it out. And uh, 
in doing that sort of thing and not being in school and having the ability to wander about, I uh, would occasionally attend a theater, a matinee in most cases, and I got to go to the casino theater and see Harry Blackstone Sr., who was the reigning magician of the day, touring uh, the United States and Canada regularly every year. And uh, I can tell you, when he did the levitation of Princess Azra, where he made the lady float up into the air, well, that was magical to me. And I began to doubt whether I would be an organic chemist or an archaeologist, as I had planned at that time. I was 12 years of age, and I sort of took a turn, maybe for the worse. I guess archaeology and chemistry lost me, but uh, show business sure got me. Brandy started in the tradition of Houdini, doing great escapes and stunts and magic, and he was also doing mentalism, which is kind of mind-reading magic. So that's really kind of the era that he comes out of. But in the 1970s, he became more famous as a debunker of false psychic claims. I'm not a debunker. I don't accept that terminology because that would mean that I went into an investigation saying, this is not true and I'm going to prove to you it's not true. So when I go into these things, though with a certain amount of difficulty, I have to say, I just don't know. Let's find out, shall we? In most cases, I do know, but uh, I can't make assumptions. If I am not a scientist, I at least am an amateur scientist, in that I like to do it in a logical, rational fashion. Brandy did start out in some ways as a skeptic, but had some experiences with people who believed that what he was doing was real. And when you're doing mind-reading tricks, it can really seem like you've got supernatural powers, and if your moral compass isn't quite headed in the right direction, you might end up taking advantage of people. But uh, Randy decided uh, that wasn't the route for him, and so he moved into skepticism. Not only that, I saw the damage that it was doing. People's belief in the paranormal powers and, and psychic forces and such. And I conferred with a great number of them who would even come to me voluntarily and ask me about something I did in the program. And they'd say, well, I enjoyed what you did so-and-so and such-and-such. -and -such. But when you told the lady your telephone number, that was real ESP, right? And I'd always say, no, 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 there's a way of doing that. Well, what is it? No, I'm sorry, I can't reveal the secrets of the conjurers after all, because uh, this is a secret brotherhood, sisterhood now. We've got a lot of female magicians in the trade, I'm happy to say. But that's the way I had to, to do it. It was very awkward when they started to believe that I actually had the powers. Well, the people that believe these people want to believe them. Let's change that statement, though. Instead of just want to believe them, they need to believe them. That's the important verb here, and I always differ with people who say the other one. They actually need to believe it because they want something supernatural in their lives. They want some magic in their lives. You don't need magic, folks. You need the facts. And science has the facts. That's where you'll find the facts of how the world really works. You're probably most famous for exposing New Age psychic and spoon bender Uri Geller. I have been his nemesis for years. I gave that up years ago, though, because I showed that he was a total fake that he just couldn't do what he said he was doing. And I have over 150 examples of where he has said on television, I don't know how to do tricks. I don't know any of those things that the magicians know. What I do is real. And he says it exactly that way on our film as well. And that gets a laugh from the house because they don't realize that he's a fellow who bends spoons. Now, wait a minute. What's your 
profession, sir. I bend spoons. Why? Because it makes me a lot of money. That's a good reason. Ben's spoons, this is an art, this is a talent that humanity needs. Any fool can bend a spoon. It's not that difficult. Well, some spoons are exceptional, but most spoons you can bend. You wouldn't want them to come to dinner, obviously. No, no. Be very careful. Don't use the best silverware. Tell me about your foundation. The James Randi Educational Foundation was set up many years ago. In order to have an actual organization that could, uh, first of all, We offer a million-dollar prize to any of the psychics who can come forth and actually prove they are psychic. You'd think there'd be a lineup outside the studio on the street right now, wouldn't you think so? I didn't notice any lineup. So we have offered that prize for all these years. And so far, no takers. Now, some people have tried, and I believe that these are the people who really believe they have psychic powers. But when we put them through the test... They fail miserably, and then they're always surprised. That is, the real truth-sayers who really believe they have the powers. The others don't come anywhere near us, of course. Justin, your documentary about James Randi, An Honest Liar, has done the film fest circuit and is now coming out in theaters. What do you want the audience to take away from your film? It's astounding to me that people are so willing to believe, and as Randi says, need to believe, And that people develop a belief system that's kind of like a bubble. And conspiracy theories are a good example of this, where their need to to adhere to this vision is so strong that any contradictory evidence, they'll bend over backwards to explain away. And this happens in all walks of life, and it happens in lots of different areas, whether it's religion or alternative medicine or you know, 9-11 conspiracies and anti-vaccination proponents. You know, the actual evidence and facts don't matter when somebody has kind of developed a belief system that will be shattered if they accept certain facts. And it's hard for somebody who is pro-science and an evidence-based thinker. It's, It's an uphill battle, as Randy has learned. And in my work as a filmmaker, I've done a number of things in this area, dealing with alien abductees and climate change deniers. It's an uphill battle to try to teach people how to discern good information from bad information and how to be open-minded enough to question their own beliefs. And those are some of the things that hopefully they'll, they'll take away from the film. Someone I haven't talked to yet is Amazing Randy's amazing partner of nearly 30 years, Davey Pena, a.k.a. the artist Jose Alvarez. How did you two meet? We met at the Fort Lauderdale Public Library. I was uh, painting ceramics at that point that had space imagery, and Randy came over and he started asking me if I was interested in space imagery. And I said yes, and we ended up spending the whole afternoon together. And I had a telescope at home, a Questar telescope, and I invited him over to the house to actually see the planet Saturn. And David, you've stuck around for nearly 30 years. Well, Yamis is the most incredible human being i ever known. And we have a lot of things in common. And I have found through him an incredible sense of compassion. I have met incredible, interesting people. And he's a a really interesting person. So, um, yeah, through the years, it's just the love has been developed and grown more and more. Randy, you came out as gay in 2010 at age 81. What prompted that? I didn't have any need to do so before that. Remember, when I was a teenager in Canada, that would never have been done. 
it absolutely wouldn't have happened or you'd probably be stoned by the neighbors. But the point is I moved to the United States and found it much more uh, acceptable of that lifestyle. And uh, I eventually got around to the point where in my 80s, I said, it's about time. And I came out with it with no problem whatsoever. However, I remember one very pivotal moment. We were watching the movie Milk with uh, Sean Penn. And after the movie, Randy was very pensive. Then the following day, he handed me out a piece of paper that he had written the night before. He said he couldn't sleep. And when I read it, it was basically his coming out letter. And I got very nervous. I said, are you sure you want to do this? And he said, well, after seeing the movie, I just thought very hard about the importance of coming out and that I must. And I think that as a person who has based his life work about telling the truth, I think it was a necessary step at that moment for him to do, and he took it, and uh, he received a great uh, appreciation for another lot of people. Well, the response was, well, not terribly surprising to me, but the result was very gratifying. By postal mail and on the Internet, letters just poured in, supporting me, saying, it, it, it's well that you did it, and that was very brave. And, oh, it wasn't all that brave. It was just time to do it. What's the best thing about being an out gay man in 2015 at 86 years old? <laughs> the best thing? Well, you had the satisfaction of knowing that uh, you didn't hesitate to tell the world when it was perfectly safe to do so. <laughs> There's not much danger in that, but it's the agreement that I got. Uh, the people who wrote me and... Uh, said congratulations. Now, you couldn't tell from many of them whether they themselves were gay or or not. And that's not the important thing. The important thing is that uh, from the public in general, I got great approval and acceptance. Acceptance is the word here, I think. That was most pleasant to me, to know that uh, I could generally trust the public to come to their senses. And look what has happened concerning the gay movement. Now, in just recent years, both Davy and I have been pretty astonished by how out this thing is now and how reasonably acceptable it is to most of the public. This has been a conversation with documentarian Justin Weinstein, co-director of An Honest Liar, Davy Pena, a.k.a. the artist Jose Alvarez, and James, the amazing Randy. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. If you could read my mind, love, what a tale my thoughts would tell. Just like an old time movie about a ghost from a wishing well. In a castle dark or a fortress strong, the chains upon my feet. You know that ghost is. Me. Oh, Steve, I don't know which word to use to describe that. Was it amazing or was it mere genius? I'll take both. Thank you. But you know, going from someone who's a total skeptic to someone who spent too long believing, Mm. it's a segue. That was a smooth segue. I didn't even notice it. So now we're moving along because, once again, Mr. Pride and I have been Mr. Two on the Isle at opening night, and we went to see Confessions of a Mormon Boy, which is playing every Sunday at 7 p.m. at the Zephyr Theater on Melrose, where we met the delightful Stephen Fales, who is here in the studio with us live. Hi, guys. Yay! Almost didn't recognize you without your clothing. Oh, oh, with your clothing. I, 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 you didn't uh, tell hey me now, not to wear. Hey now, what am I? Did I miss something? It's radio, so we have cameras. No, we don't. Are yes. you nude in the show? Do you take your no, clothes off? No, we 
Michael, he changes we have, a, we have a costume change, but there is no full frontal nudity. We get naked in other ways. I see. He's emotionally bare. Mm, so like now, that. Stephen, how would you describe in two seconds or less... Confessions of a Mormon Boy, because I know it's part of a trilogy, so there's a huge story being told. Well, it's serious stuff, more timely than ever, but it's funny. It's about being the perfect Mormon boy. I mean, the I mean, all the rites of passage, uh, and then being the perfect rent boy in New York City, mm-hmm. and all of that, the meth, the escorting, the double life, all while being a dad, and then finding a middle ground, waking up, stop self-destructing. It's about reclaiming my kids and my Donny Osmond smile. You know, speaking of that smile, you use that image a lot, uh, the Mormon smile specifically. Would you discuss that? Well, it's a metaphor, you know, and in a way, you know, I just saw Pinocchio, the Disney film, mm-hmm. and I'm like, he, they're telling my story. This is the tale of, of what it is to be a real boy. And we have that plastic smile in the Mormon world where we can, we can hide behind it, yet it can also become a weapon. And so what is it to smile from within? And uh, so that, those are some of the themes. The, the smile is a metaphor. Now, you're, you, what do your, um, the other two installations on this trilogy, what did they do with just briefly? Well, missionary... Because I, I saw the other one years ago. <laughs> oh, missionary position? Yeah. When I did it at Celebration Theater? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah they, they were great. Oh, that was they fun. They helped premiere, and so it's gone on. I'm a company member, so yes. Oh, I love Celebration. Yes. Hey, right? And they lost their space. Oh, we're, we're going to have a new one. Yeah, they're Good. Glendale now well, or something. Bring me back. No, but, we're not. Um, oh, so uh, Missionary Position, A Coming-of-Age Tale, is the prequel to Confessions. So it's about my Mormon mission. And this came long before the Book of Mormon, I must say. Where'd you go? Portugal. Mm. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a fantastical exploration of um, Mormonism. We go inside the Mormon temples. We deconstruct the Freemasonry and the, the green fig-leafed aprons and, and all the, the things that make it a cult, like the, 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 the death penalties that you swear to, to abide by if you ever tell these secrets. So... Um, it's, Which you did. <laughs> yeah, and I've had family disown me for Oh, no. It. Yeah. There's a death penalty if you tell the secrets? Yeah. When I went through, if you told, you, you welcome death to come upon you if you ever divulge the secret handshakes, the, the signs, the tokens. It's, uh, it's uh, like, you know, people don't even know what's going on what's in these temples. What's the rationale? Because I'm fascinated by Mormonism because it's so cloak and dagger and so forth. But what's the rationale for keeping things, if the general idea of it is supposed to be a good, godly, wonderful thing. What's the rationale for being so secret? Control. It's a, Inside the temple, gender roles are rigid. Yes. Extremely rigid. And the, plan, the, the God, the eternities are uh, patriarchy and many, many goddesses that you are married to. And so they want to keep things rigid and male-centric. If you went through, and that's why I share this, because what is happening in the Mormon temples is what fueled Proposition 8. It is what's fueling the backlash Mm -hmm. of the Mormon church. They never want to change these ceremonies. They're afraid that with all these new rights for the gays, that they, uh, for us, I should say. (laughs) Yes, yes. I'm gay, bye, whatever (laughs) you want to call me. Anyway, it's a fascinating exploration, and that's what Missionary Position is about. Also, we have some fantastic, it's the crowd pleaser. It is like fantastical um, fantasy sequences. Part three in the Mormon Boy trilogy, mm. which I just did the whole trilogy in Richmond, Virginia, and uh, now do you do it in one long day? Yeah, it's called the Mormonthon. <laughs> of course it <laughs> is, right? Of course. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, we could rip on. Uh, so anyway, you can see, like, you'll see mission, you'll see confessions at at one, missionary at four, and uh, and prodigal dad part three at seven. 
And so, you serve funeral potatoes and oh, the bun. Sh- and green should, jello. And green oh, jello. Right? I mean, isn't that more you, of a you staple? You know those golden plates they found? Because I love dinnerware. Let's eat. Oh, you're good. <laughs> don't encourage him. <laughs> Please don't encourage him. I've never heard that one before. So, yeah, Prodigal Dad is about father's rights. I moved back to Utah, and as the non-custodial parent, I faced the biggest challenge of my life. My ex-wife filed false allegations of child abuse. And it's about me prevailing in the courts in Utah. And so it's serious stuff. Mm. It also deals with me meeting my father-in-law who died of AIDS before I ever met him. So I resurrect him to the stage, conjure him, and we deal with all of these issues from his death in the Castro and what I'm going through today, both as gay dads, both as non-custodial parents. Wow. And it's like, it's epic. And the Washington Post just gave me a rave review about all three. So I'm hoping to do it here in Los Angeles. And then we'd go, um, we take it all off Broadway. And how many years have you been doing these? Because it was, what, eight years ago when you did it at the... It was, uh, no, in 2009. So not quite that That reason. Yeah, yeah. Oh. So I've been developing all of these properties. And so it's just great to be in L.A. again. I, and I'm loving the Zephyr Theater. And we had the best opening night. With so, it was sold out. We had, we had crazy things happen. It was totally raining that night. Yes, it and, was. You know, pouring. And no one's supposed to be on the roads. And we were turning people away. And mm. it was Downton Out, Abbey. The, some premiere or something. So I was, it was the, No, it was the finale. It was the finale. the finale. I was competing with that, yes. the rain, and they still came out. <laughs> it was a lovely evening. But now I, I wonder when you do a show for this long a period, does the show change in time? Does it grow? Do you edit more and more? You know, I've tried, in my style, I'm trying to, to breathe with this uh, Confessions a little more. It was my early piece, and it's the classic. I've done it over a thousand times. Mm. Uh, my other writing frees me up, but so I'm trying to be a little more spontaneous with confessions, and and like you saw, um, I welcome things like that godlight going out that that we had to fix, and and keeps it fresh. And know? it seems so right. But now, before anybody gets the wrong idea, even though it, this is not a hatchet job on the Mormon Church, you do treat Mormons and religion generally with a lot more respect. Well, listen, than, say I would. Yeah, I say that I'm no longer a Latter Day Saint, but something about me will always be Mormon. So these are my people. I mean, I had people cross the, the plains, and I believe in my people, but I have a real hard time with institutionalized bigotry. Well, recently they announced they were a kinder, gentler Mormon church to the gay community. What's that called? SPR. <laughs> I know. Didn't Bush say, say that at one time, too, kinder and gentler? Yeah, yeah. It's a PR thing. I see right through it. Um, they're trying to be nice, but they, 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 don't, they have to come along a little bit. Uh, and they can say that they're coming along, but they're not. And there is a basically, there's also like this uh, in the Catholic Church called the Third Way. It's basically saying we love our gay brothers and sisters as long as you're celibate. Yeah, it's ha- basically you just don't do that. Yeah, but we're acknowledging. So you. we're going to deny you full self-expression. If you do not have full self-expression in your life in all ways, you're not fully human. So I will not accept anything less than right. my full self-expression yeah. and we, rights. We recently had a reality show on one of the. The Learning Channel. I don't know oh, what's yes. called that. I learned something. About Mormons that are undergoing same-sex attraction, but they're still encouraged to get married and just fight it. It's, well, it's a disease. They, they're, they're calling it like a disorder, SSA, same-sex attraction. It? My husband's not gay. Yeah. It was fascinating. Yeah, you know what? My take on it, having been through all of this mm-hmm. and marrying a woman that, that knew before I got married that I was gay, you know, I, I think, I think it's take, we need to take a look at the women. Why do they choose this? You know, why do they, you know, I know. Well, I do they choose they, it or they they don't want it for them? 
No. Well, they're subjugated, but we need to empower them with their and keep mm-hmm. them accountable for their choice. They well, didn't want to marry a, a Mormon jerk, so they went to a gay guy that they could dominate at home. Well, because I, for Mormon women, and there's a big issue about that, they have to get married or else they're just doomed. They're not going to survive it, or they're going to get married in the afterlife like they're baptizing in the afterlife. I mean, for women, it's even more important that they marry, isn't it? Uh, it's equally, more pressure. It's, 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 yeah, yeah. You're without a man, you're nothing. Yeah. Because you'll never have the priesthood. You will never have the priesthood. You will never have ecclesiastical power. But if you marry a gay man, you may be able to dominate at home. This is something we're not talking about enough. Mm. Now, I would think having three shows in your head all the time would be more than enough. But you have quite a few other projects going on, don't you? Well, I have this cabaret act, Mormon American Princess. Well, I'm really a cowboy. <laughs> map. I'm really, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm putting Utah on the map. Yes, you are. But I have a new solo show uh, that's more 60 minutes, you know, more stand-up, and a little singing called Cult Model. You know, like yeah. cult yeah, porn. Yeah, yeah. You better but, work. But this is Cult Model. <laughs> so it's a it's an exploration of my cult susceptibility. I do have to mention that you do sing in Confessions of Mormon Boy. For those of us that were thinking that we're going to do some Book of Mormon songs, no, you, no. they weren't there. But you have a lovely voice. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. And you're also working on, uh, and it's not up yet, but the Possibility Foundation. Now, what is that about? Yeah, this for the last decade, I've been holding this in my back pocket, and I really want to, uh, it's in the beginnings, but this, the Possibility Foundation helps victims of human trafficking and also assists sex workers desiring to transition out of the sex industry. Mm. And let me tell you, it is hard to transition out of the sex industry. Yep. So my show is about how I got out. And I want to help others get out if, it, if they're ready. There comes a time in a sex worker's life when it may be time to move on. So come to me. Let's talk about Good what your real you. dreams are. Good for you. And speaking of moving on, I'm afraid that we have run out of time oh, no. already. So I know. So everybody, it's Confessions of a Mormon <laughs> Boy. It's every Sunday at 7 o'clock. It's at the Zephyr Theater. It runs through April 26, unless it's extended, which could always happen. And to get tickets, you go to mormonboy.brownpapertickets.com. Do you have a website, Stephen? Yes, Mormon Boy Online is the new website, so you can go there for tickets as well. MormonBoyOnline.com. Oh, and yes, it's a Mormon great Boy show. I highly <laughs> recommend this show. It was very fun and very Thank educational. You. I mean, if you weren't raised around the Mormon church, there is so much to learn. Well, that's the end of our ride. Gather your personal courage, take timid politicos by the hand, and exit to the far left of the tram's Forward motion. Our thanks to tonight's director, Michelle Marie Gilkison, coordinating producer Steve Pride, and our Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. The link to the latest show is posted by noon every Tuesday. And thanks to everyone who supported KPFK during our recent fun drive. Remember, you don't have to wait until the next fun drive to support this station. Because the next one starts in five, four, three, two. I know. Doesn't it feel like that? But no, I was just going to suggest that they can donate $10 right now at this moment by text. Ah. KPFK to 20222. Again, text KPFK to 20222. $10 lands in the account. You're so smart. And don't forget, this is March, which means it's Women's History Month. Yay. And uh, this Saturday, oh, not this Saturday, uh, next Saturday, March, Saturday, March 14th. It is it. Time just flies when you're waiting for corned beef and cabbage. This Saturday, you know why I know? Because this Saturday is also the concert of the Dorn Dance Company that Winslow and I are going to. Michelle is dancing in it. Yes, yes that's going to be Many awesome. of the IMRU dancers will be there. That is terrific. So there'll be dancing women, and there's also going to be on, on this day from a, a casual cocktail party for the National Center for Lesbian Rights, NCA. 
L-R, at our own Abby D's house. If you are interested in going to meet Kate Kendall, who is the boss of this organization, and get involved with the National Center of Lesbian Rights, RSVP at nclrights.org, and then follow the Get Involved link. Gosh, is Abby a real person? I always thought she was a myth, a legend around well, I'm going to do that, too, because I want to look around her house and see what she's doing. Oh, it's hey, nice. Because her things... It's a very nice house in a very nice neighborhood. <laughs> but you need to Pasadena, be. Pasadena, by the but way. But go there to support rights for lesbians. That's it, what you're there for, not to snoop. And in okay. case you haven't noticed, the hottest show on TV right now is Empire, produced by the openly gay Lee Daniels. It features the openly gay character Jamal Lyon, played by Jesse Smollett. Well, the character came out a couple of weeks ago, and the actor who plays him came out last week. So we close with. Jamal Lyon, a.k.a. Jesse Smollett, performing his character's big coming out number, You're So Beautiful. Good night. Good night. Good night. Sometimes you feel insecure. Trust me, babe, I understand. Even with no manicure, just know that I still hold your hand. You look so good when you walk by. Sexy comes in every size. Keep waving that. You got yourself a new man. Kanye's workout plan. I call that baby fat. Baby fat. Cause you sure look good to me, I think. You're so beautiful. You just came out.